Um, we're going to dig into the book of Hosea again, and I'm really excited to be able to share this with you this week. We're going to pick up in Hosea chapter 4, uh, and, and I'm, I'm hopeful that over the course of the next um, six weeks, as we explore this book, that we get a, a sense of the shape of it, what's going on. Last week, we saw chapters 1 to 3 really tell of a love story between Hosea and Goma. And it's a love story that parallels the relationship between God and his people. But that story that is set up in chapters 1 to 3 is then unpacked in the rest of the book. So chapters 1 to 3 is the story, but we don't then hear about Hosea or Gomer again in the rest of the book. It all now shifts to understanding the relationship between God and his people. And it is a stunning and beautiful, but also painful relationship that we're going to look at. And it is the story of God and his bride. It's a story of covenant faithfulness. That is, that God unswervingly and unfailingly has committed himself to love his people. Despite their unfaithfulness, God has promised to love them. And he will not fail. But we come now to chapter 4, and I'm not going to read all of chapters 4 and 5 straight off, because that would be quite a lot for us to get our heads around. So what we're going to do is read a bit, think about what it means, read a bit more, and just work our way through to see what's going on in uh, these two chapters. There's quite a lot to get through, but um, I think you'll see how it all holds together. And we're going to start with chapter 4, verse 1. So if you've got a Bible or you've got a phone, or something you can get the Bible on. It's going to really help you to have the words of Hosea in front of you. So Hosea chapter 4 and verse 1, it says this. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you, against you who live in the land. Okay, let's stop there. So we've seen chapters 1 to 3. It, tells the, it sets up this story. We're going, to, we're going to hear a love story between God and his people. But then when you get to chapter 4, the first thing we're told is that God has a charge to bring against his people. Now, I received a charge this week. Um, it came through the post. Um, it was a penalty charge notice. Um, I don't know if you've received a, a, a parking fine or a penalty charge through the post. This came this week. Great timing, very excellent for my my illustration. It's wonderful. I was very delighted with it. And uh, it it appeared, and of course, the first thing you do when you get a penalty charge notice is is you sort of think, well, what did I do wrong? Because, you know, we sort of go through life assuming that we don't make mistakes and we don't ever get anything wrong. So my first reaction was, well, I don't think I've done anything wrong. What can they possibly have caught me doing? And then there's a photo of my car going the wrong way down a one-way street. At which point, of course, I think, well, that must have been... I mean, Linda must have been dri- driving. So, you know, I checked the time. I, I, unfortunately, it was me driving. And then I'm exposed. This charge stands against me and tells me that there's a fine to be paid. And God says to his people, I have a charge against you. Now, at that point, we might think, well, hang on a second. This is like the worst love story I've ever heard in my life. What love story starts with the man saying to his bride, I have a charge against you. I'd like to issue you with a penalty charge notice. 
At first sight, it sounds like it's going to be a bit bleak. But actually, the reason I think these two chapters are beautiful, and I genuinely think this, this charge that God has against his people is beautiful, is because it's going to give us a glimpse into what it is that God wants from us. What is it that God expects from his people? You see, the first thing I wanted to know when I'd got my penalty charge notice was, well, what did I do wrong? And here we're going to discover what is it that Israel, this nation, 8th century Israel, before Christ, Israel, what was it they did wrong? What was it that God was looking for? Now remember, we're talking in the realm of a love story between God and his people. That means the charge that God has against his people is not like the charge I received. You see, the parking authorities, I'm not in a covenant love relationship with the parking authorities. Very much not. They, They stand as an authority that rebukes me and hands down demands. It says, I've got rules, and if you break my rules, I'll slap you with a fine. That's not how God works. This charge is not the charge of an angry policeman sitting in heaven saying, you've broken my rules, and now I'm going to punish you. That's not what's going on. No, this is the charge of a God who has committed himself in covenant love to his people. And that is why the charge he brings is so important for us to understand. So let me continue. Let me read the next couple of verses. Here's the charge. This is halfway through verse 1. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea are swept away. Here is God's headline, right? This is the headline. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. Now, remember, remember, you've got to keep remembering this. We talked a lot last time about God's covenant love. That is that God has committed himself to love his people. And it would be easy for us, I think, sometimes to fall into the trap of thinking it's an unconditional love that God has for us, a a sort of unilateral love. I said last week that God has promised to love us no matter what we do. God has promised to love his people, to keep his promise. And so it would be easy for us to think, well, therefore, it doesn't really matter, does it? It's like going around Borough Market, picking up free samples. There's no obligation. Here are the market stall holders, holding out a little bit of fudge. You go, thank you very much. And then I'll have a bit of oyster. And it's the most bizarre experience, right? But you go around taking stuff because it's for free. And it can be tempting sometimes to think when we talk about God's grace or God's love or God's covenant kindness, that God's love is like that. We just thought, oh, great, I'll take a bit of that. But that would be to badly misunderstand God's covenant love for his people. Let let me put it like this, okay? And you're going to have to work hard just for a couple of minutes to understand this, because this is what lies at the heart of everything that we're going to see um, this afternoon. To think like that 
is to confuse the source of God's love with the goal of God's love. Let, let me explain. The source of God's covenant love, that is, the reason that God loves his people, is not because of anything in them, it's because of him. He's the God of love who's chosen to love his people. Now that's different to the way that I might use the word love. So if I say, I love ice cream, the source of that love is the loveliness of the ice cream. The source of my love is located in the object of my love. Ice cream is lovely, therefore I love it. If something is not lovely, I don't love it. But God's love for his people doesn't work like that. You see, the trouble is, we, when we hear that God loves us, we instinctively think, well, that must be because we're lovely. And the Bible says, no, that's not how God works. God's love finds its cause in him. God loves us because he chooses to love us. It's very clear in the Bible. God chose to love this nation of Israel because he chose to love them and through them to love the world. He chooses to love a people who aren't lovely. And therefore we say, oh great, it doesn't matter what I do then. It's just a free gift, I take it. No, because you've got to understand the goal of God's love. Why did God choose to set his love on Israel, this nation that he took as his own. Why? He chose to love them so that he might transform them. Listen carefully. Right? This, is, this is my summary statement. Um, this should come up on the screen. Here's the, here's the key that I want us to get our heads around. The goal of God's covenant love, the reason that God loves people, is to create a people who will loyally and exclusively love him. That's the point. God didn't just love Israel and go, there we go, that's nice, I love you, and they can run around going, yay, God loves us. God loved Israel so that they would love him back. To transform them to be a lovely people, a loving people. So this is, we're going to come back to this, right? We're coming back to Hosea and the charge in a second, but we've just got to get this really clear in our heads. So when God rescues his people Israel out of slavery, they're in slavery, they're in big trouble. God comes, he rescues them, he brings them out, he brings them to Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, he says, you're my treasured possession. I love you out of all the nations of the earth. I chose you, I love you. And then he says, now you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below. You shall not misuse my name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Do you hear what God's saying to his people? He says, I've rescued you because I want you to love me. I've rescued you so that you might be my covenant people and love me back. That is the goal of God's covenant love. To be loved by God brings us into a relationship where we then are transformed to love Him. In fact, one of the really strange things in the Bible, and honestly, this is going to get your head spinning if you've never really thought about this before. You know, one of the names that God is given is the name Jealous. God is Jealous. Jealous. 
And we immediately go, whoa, 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 God can't be jealous because jealousy is always bad, right? No, no, no. Envy is always bad, not jealousy. There is a sort of jealousy that burns with a zeal and a passion and a love and a delight that overflows in jealousy. And God so loves his people that he is jealous for their love in return. Not in a sort of needy, oh, please love me sort of way, but in a glorious, majestic, sovereign king of the universe, the one who's worthy, only worthy of glory and worship and love and honor. And he says, I've saved you so that you would worship and love me. And we hear that and we go, it sounds a bit egotistical. And if God was a man, it would be, but he's not. He's God and he's glorious and he's majestic. And there is nothing more glorious and right than to give him the praise that's due to his name. That is to worship him. And so God takes a people who are unlovely. He takes a people who do not love him. He takes a people who are sinners and he saves them and he transforms them and he says, love me. And he gives them his law. And so it's no surprise when you get to the New Testament and you hear Jesus and Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says the greatest commandment is this, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. An exclusive, loyal relationship where God has it all. If you like, last week we said, when God made a covenant with his people, God said, I will. I will take you to be my people. And he asks in return and transforms us in return that we might say to him, we will. He says, will you take me to be your God? Forsaking all others, will you be faithful to me as long as you live? And the, question, and the, the response that God is calling forth from his people is, we will. We'll be loyal to you and we'll love you and we'll know you and we'll worship you forever. Of course, that means saying no to every other God. On my wedding day, when I was asked, will you take this woman to be your wife? Forsaking all others. When I said I will, I was saying no to every other woman in the whole world. I mean, there, there, were, there, wasn't, a huge queue, I mean, there wasn't a huge queue at the door, if I'm totally honest. But you get it, right? When you say I will, God is saying, I want my people to be committed to me right now. That was a long little diversion, but it's important we get it. Because now if you come back to Hosea chapter 4, listen to it. God says, this is his charge against his people. I've loved you, God says. I've loved you and I've loved you. But there's no faithfulness. There's no love. There's no acknowledgement of God in the land. You've broken your covenant with me. Acknowledgement of God. To know God is a relational term. In fact, it's, it's really a very intimate term. It's the term that Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve make love in order to, to create the, the, their first child, it says Adam knew Eve. We're not just talking about knowing about God. It's knowing him, knowing him at a heart, deep, 
relational level. God says, that's what I saved you for. That's what I made you for, Israel. But you don't. And because they don't love God, of course they don't love others. Jesus says the greatest commandment is this, love God with all your heart. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There are no commandments greater than these. And so if you abandon loving God and being devoted to Him and exclusively and loyally being committed to Him, of course it leads to not loving your neighbor. This is why this Ten Commandments go on from, relation, from knowing God to, to loving our neighbor. Honor your father and mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not cover anything belonging to your neighbor. These things flow out of knowing God. And so God looks at his people and says, this is the charge. You don't love me. And so instead, there's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. You hear it? It's a mess. They break all bounds. There's no restraint on it. It's out of control because they've abandoned the God who covenanted to love them. They've said, I will, but they've ignored him and run off after other gods. And so because of this, the land dries up and the world is suffering. That is the central issue that's going on in these two chapters of Hosea. And it shows us, this charge against God's people shows us that God is jealous for the love of his people. And let me just say again, if at first sight you feel uncomfortable with that, can you imagine what it would be like if God was apathetic about our love? If God just went, I don't care. We don't want a God like that. You don't want a relationship like that. Instead, you have the God who saves us to love him. But let's work our way through now. I want to show you how this works out in practice. Okay, so stick with this. We're going to see now this breakdown of relationship, this heart commitment, and we're going to keep thinking to ourselves, what does it mean for us to be people who are exclusively and loyally devoted to God? Well, the first thing we're going to see is it starts with the leaders. It starts with the leaders. Let me read verses um, 4 to 9. But let no one bring a charge. Let no one accuse another. For your people are like those who bring charges against the priest. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. Because you've ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. The more their priests there were, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged their glorious God for something disgraceful. They feed on the sins of my people and relish their wickedness. And it will be like people, like priests. I will punish both of them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. God says, you want to trace where this problem comes from among my people? God says, just look at their leaders. Look at the leaders in Israel and you will see leaders who have abandoned, devoted, exclusive, loyal love for God. And they just feed themselves. They feed on the sins of the people. There's no love, there's no leading in, in heart devotion to God, in heart worship. Instead, there's a leading into sin. 
this is where it starts. So let me apply this firstly to uh, those elders at Globe Church. There are five elders, five of us who are elders. And I want to say to my fellow elders in the sight of everybody at Globe Church, brothers, our worship of God matters more than anything else. We have responsibility to lead our church family in a heartfelt, loyal, exclusive worship. I don't feel up to that task. But God is the one who transforms us and enables us to do that. And it isn't just the elders. There are all sorts of people in our church family who are leading, focus group leaders, serving team leaders, people meeting up to do one-to-one. Some of you are leading in Christian unions. Some of you are leading in your homes. Listen, leadership matters. Are you leading people in knowledge, in devotion, in worship of God? It starts with the leaders. But let's, let's keep going. The second thing I want us to see is that pleasure becomes ultimate. When you abandon a heart love for God, actually what rules you is pleasure. Let me read verses 10 to 14. They will eat but not have enough. They will engage in prostitution but not flourish. Because they have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution, old wine and new wine take away their understanding. My people consult a wooden idol and a diviner's rod speaks to them. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They are unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar and terebinth where the shade is pleasant. Therefore your daughters turn to prostitution and your daughters-in-law to adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they turn to prostitution nor your daughters-in-law when they commit adultery because the men themselves consort with harlots and sacrifice with shine prostitutes. A people without understanding will come to ruin. Do you hear the, do you hear the ache, the tone in these words? This is not the harsh words of a policeman. This is the desperate words. This is the agonizing words of a lover. And yet what the people have done is they have chosen to go for the easy rather than the valuable. And so you get language of old wine and new wine. There is drunkenness, there is alcohol, there is sexual immorality. This worship that they've given themselves over to is a worship that involves pleasure. The satisfying of sexual appetite. So you go to worship these gods that they've given themselves over to, what gods like Baal. And when you go to Baal's temple, you find there are prostitutes there. And you go there to have sex with a prostitute as part of your worship. This is what happens when pleasure begins to dominate, when actually we build things around what we think feels good. And did you notice the little... Note in verse 13, they sacrifice on the mountaintops and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar and terebinth, where the shade is pleasant. This is a nice spot. Hey, should we sacrifice here? This is pleasant, isn't it? What a lovely place to be. 
But of course, God says, no, the place where you worship me is in Jerusalem, my temple. I've given you a place. I've given you a place where we can enjoy covenant faithfulness. But you've abandoned that because it's too far to Jerusalem. What a hassle. Surely it shouldn't be that difficult. Let's just go for what is easy. Let's go to the nice, pleasant, shady mountaintop. And let's offer sacrifices there. Can I say when pleasure begins to become the dominating and controlling aspect of the decisions that we make, we are heading away from covenant faithfulness to God. I mean, this language of adultery and prostitution is all over the place in Hosea. And it's because God wants his people to see this unfaithfulness in terms of this covenant relationship that he has with his people. Why does someone commit adultery? Why would someone in a happy, long marriage suddenly one day commit adultery? Well, it must be partly because pleasure takes control. Because you choose what is easy and pleasurable for the moment rather than what is costly and committed. And many people abandon Jesus. Many people walk away from God because it's just too hard. And there's something over here that just seems easier. What is it at the moment in your life that feels much easier than following Jesus? What is it at the moment in your life that you go, you know what, if I didn't follow Jesus, at least I could do this. Pleasure becomes ultimate and we will wander away. We will turn away from the God of covenant love who loves us. Let's keep going. The third thing I want us to see is that the situation is perilous for God's people. Let me read from verse 15. Though you, Israel, commit adultery, do not let Judah become guilty. Remember, Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south. And at this point, Judah is not yet as far gone as Israel, but they're heading that way. But for Israel, the situation is deadly perilous. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not go up to Beth-Avon. Do not swear as surely as the Lord lives. He's saying, don't go and join in the worship of Israel. Judah, don't go and join in with that. Because, verse 16, the Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. How can the Lord pasture them like lambs in a meadow? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Even when their drinks are gone, they continue their prostitution. Their rulers dearly love shameful ways. A whirlwind will sweep them away and their sacrifices will bring them shame. Do you hear how terrible it's got? They're stubborn. Israel, is. there's no changing them now. They've set themselves on a course and it's over for them. That's how serious it is. This is not, okay, well, I'll wander over here for a little bit and then when I fancy it, I'll just come back to God and I'll wander over here and I'll come back to God when I need him. No, no, Israel's stubborn, fixed. And verse 17 is devastating, isn't it? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. Hand him over. Hand Israel over to their idolatry. Leave him alone. It's a terrifying judgment of God. The situation is so dangerous. And you know what? If we continually and repeatedly 
wander away from God, we become more and more stubborn and more and more hard-hearted. We've got to hear the warning, the danger of walking away from this covenant relationship that God has given us. And as we go into chapter 5, let's keep going. I'm just aware that time is running away. Um, If you look at chapter 5, mere religion is not enough. Mere religion is not going to fix this problem. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, you Israelites. Listen, royal house. This judgment is against you. You've been a snare at Mizpah, a net spread out on table. Those are like the high places where they're offering these sacrifices. This is a snare to Israel. They've been trapped by this adultery, this idolatry. The rebels are knee-deep in slaughter. I will discipline all of them. I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you've now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. A spirit of prostitution is in their heart. They do not acknowledge the Lord. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. The Israelites, even Ephraim, stumble in their sin. Judah also stumbles with them. When they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him. He's withdrawn himself from them. They're unfaithful to the Lord. They give birth to illegitimate children. When they celebrate their new moon feasts, he will devour their fields. God says, I want your heart devotion. I want your loyal love. I want your exclusive worship. I do not want your mixed up, hypocritical religion. I don't want you coming, bringing me sacrifices that you don't mean. Sacrifices that don't come from your heart. Oh, let's go and seek the Lord. God says, you won't find me. I'm not interested in being one of your gods. I'm not interested in being a mistress in your little harem. He says, I want to be your God. You're my people. I love you. And I want your exclusive and loyal love in return. And how easy it is for us to think that we can come to church on a Sunday and sing our songs and that we can do our little things and through the week we can just walk away from God and we can live our lives in ways that completely dishonor Him. And then on a Sunday we can raise our hands and worship and say, Oh God, we love you, we worship you, we worship you. And God says, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in love that comes from your lips but's not in your heart. And if that sounds harsh to you, let me say to you, it would be terrible if God would accept that. No, what God longs for, God's ambition for us, God's God's dream for us, His people, is that we would have hearts on fire with devotion and exclusive loyal love for Him. Which brings me to the last of these charges. No one is able to help you. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. Raise the cry in Beth-Avon. Lead on, Benjamin. Ephraim will be laid waste. You see, this is deadly, right? The the judgment's coming. They are going to be taken into exile. On the day of reckoning, among the tribes of Israel, I proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I'll pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. Do you hear it? They just won't stop. 
I'm like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria. When, when Israel saw their need, rather than turn to the covenant, loyal, loving God, they turned to the king of Assyria, sent to the great king for help. But he's not able to cure you. He's not able to heal your sores. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces and go away. I will carry them off with no one to rescue them. Then I will return to my lair until they've borne their guilt and seek my face. Do you hear it? It's no good turning to Assyria. There is no one who can help you. It's no good seeking someone else to fix the problem in our hearts. In fact, you know what? Assyria, just 40 years later, will sweep in and will be the very ones who take Israel into exile. God says no one else can help you. And how quick we are to turn to other things, how quick we are to put our hope in education or politicians or vaccines or something that will fix our problem. We go, yay, now we're okay. No, we're not. There's only God. But just as we finish, and and maybe you think this is a very bleak sermon, there's a beautiful hint of hope. Look at the very last the very last sentence, I'll return to my lair until they've borne their guilt and seek my face. In, my, in their misery, they will earnestly seek me. What has this charge been all about? The whole thing has been about calling God's people back to a heart, covenant, devoted love. But of course, the problem is that the people can't do it on their own. And this is why God's plan was always that he would need to act. That he had a plan to do something decisive, to bring about a change. And so God's plan was always that he would send his son into the world to be the one who would do what we could not do for ourselves. That God would send his son into the world to be the one who would transform his people so that our hearts would be exclusively and loyally in love with him. Can I tell you, as I've preached this this afternoon, as I've studied it this week, this charge stands against me. God has a charge against me. My heart doesn't love him loyally. And my guess is that yours doesn't either. And so, yeah, there is a charge that God has against us. But what God has done is he sent his son into the world. And you know, I noticed one thing this week which blew my mind. Do you know what happened when Jesus died? Do you know what one of the things they said to him as he died? In the Gospels, um, as it records the moment when Jesus died, um, let me just read you this one little bit and see if you can notice it. Um, Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. Jesus on the cross. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest of them said, Now leave him alone. Does that sound familiar? 
Leave him alone. Remember the God judgment God spoke against his people? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Here is Jesus, the one who comes into the world, dies on the cross, and is left alone. Here is the one who takes the punishment that Israel deserves, who takes the punishment of aloneness for all of my idolatry and all of my adultery. He takes the penalty charge that is against me and he pays it completely. He pays it so that there's nothing left for me to pay. He pays it so that I go free. And then this God of love pours out his spirit into our hearts so that our hearts would begin to love him as we should. Do you know what God wants from you? He wants your heart. He wants everything. He wants your love and your worship and your devotion. He wants you to love him with a faithful and absolute love. And you say, I can't. Even if I want to, I can't. And God says, I know you can't. So let me help you. Let me begin to change you. And God will spend the rest of your life making you into his loyal and devoted child. Is that what you want? Do you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind? Because that's what he died to save you for. So let's take these words of Hosea. Let's listen to that charge that is against us. And let's worship Jesus, the one who paid what we owe. And then let's say to Jesus, yeah, I want to love you. I want to love you. Is that your cry? Maybe you're watching this and you've never ever become a, you never followed Jesus, you've never become a Christian. That's what being a Christian is. Being a Christian is about saying to Jesus, I'm sorry for the way I've lived. I want to love you. And he will love you and he will transform you. And maybe some of us feel very guilty this afternoon. We know we failed. God says, I know that. Today's a new day. Let's go again. I forgive you. It's paid. Jesus paid it all. Let's go again. Will you be devoted to him this week? Will we be his loyal devoted people. Why don't we pray and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd help us to hear this charge, but to hear this charge not as the angry words of a policeman in the sky, but to hear this charge as the loving call of the God of covenant faithfulness. Lord, please, we long to be your devoted, worshipping people. And we ask that you'd help us. Father, help us to, where we're in positions of leadership, to lead in this devotion and wisdom. Father, we pray that we would deny the immediate delights of pleasure and pursue a commitment, a loyal commitment to you. Father, we pray for this joy in loving and worshipping you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.